All right, welcome all sentient creatures to the podcast. Glad to have Why you. Why did you just say sentient? Well... Are you implying that some listening are not sentient? Um, I guess I was thinking that if you're not conscious that this show might not make sense. I don't know. Is AI sentient? I'm not saying. <laughs> okay, well, you're not saying if you're fully conscious, but you are suggesting that you are passive-aggressive. All right, either way, my bad. Let's start over. Okay, welcome everyone. Irrespective of whether you have experienced the awakening we label as consciousness, we are glad that you're with us today. How's that? That's better. Much more inclusive. Actually, I think you're probably right. And you need all the help you can get. Who knows? Maybe AI is a fan. (laughs) That's true. I mean, as far as I know, AI might be a big fan. That reminds me, like a few years ago, when I released some of my music, this was back when internet radio was... um, you know, it was a brand new thing. I didn't know what to do with it. I still don't really know what to do with it. But I had some music that I had released. And apparently, I kept getting notifications that uh, people in the United Arab Emirates liked it. I had no idea what to do with it. But um, I kept telling my American friends, you know, apparently I'm huge over in the Arab world. Unfortunately, none of the Americans really cared. But this could be like the same thing. I might be really popular with artificial intelligence but not with humans. Hmm. Jonathan, whether you are popular or not, or any group is listening or not, the point is to be open to the new, to welcome possibilities of something different. Yeah, really, as odd as this conversation is, now that I think about it, you're probably right. Because as AI becomes more and more normal, as it blends in with humanity, we're gonna, we're gonna see a type of evolution here, a post-humanity, some people are calling it. And then the lines, lines between, between the, the two, two, they're just going to be, be blurred. Okay. <laughs> okay. Now, now you're, you're messing, messing with me. me. Stop, Stop it. it. Welcome to the Jonathan underscore Foster podcast. A series of audio recording files where Jonathan engages with questions and concepts through the lens of René Girard's mimetic theory and open and relational theology. Hey everyone, my name is Alice. I'm an AI-generated voice, which makes sense because as you have already gathered, today we are talking about artificial intelligence, the future, and where the divine might be in all of this. That's right, we sure are. Thank you, Alice. Uh, Pretty interesting topic. We're going to talk about this today because some of you submitted some questions, although honestly, I'm not really sure how to uh, summarize the questions. But also because my interest was piqued again about all of this. Recently, um, I was on an independent research URL called MidJourney. You should check it out. I got there through my Discord uh, platform. But it's a site that uses artificial intelligence, that is AI, to create, I think they use the word imagine, you type in a prompt, no, a slash, and then imagine, and then uh, you, you put these different prompts in, and it'll imagine or create a new image, and it's, it's crazy. You can type in a few prompts, and within 60 seconds, it creates four images for you to choose from. They look like photos or paintings or really whatever you tell it to look like. If you're on my uh, Patreon page, you can see the following images that come up when I typed, for example, a very detailed close-up of dirty football player with freckles. That one's freaky. 
or I typed in detailed lone tree in the forest with rain. One of my favorite is I typed in surreal dog meditating with sunflower. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure where my head was, but the point is super interesting stuff that AI came up with. And I knew this stuff was out there. I mean, I've been playing, for example, with audio sounds for years that are better and better at recreating almost anything. Like none of the music you hear on this podcast comes from actual acoustic analog instruments. Everything is digital and sampled or resampled and recreated before it's turned into music. And then obviously, as you know, I've been having fun with my AI voices during this season. That all comes from a website called Murph.ai. I think that's the name of it. But even with all of that, I was stunned at times with the images that the mid-journey artificial intelligence program was coming up with and doing so in only 60 seconds. It really was and is unbelievable. Yeah, how have we arrived here? Like, better yet, how are we arriving here? Because it's not like it's over. I mean, it's still happening in real time for us. What compels us? Maybe better yet, what impels us? Impel implies whatever it is that's driving this whole thing is coming from the inside rather than the outside. It's not an outside force. And being a relational thinker, I totally agree with that. I'm in agreement with much of science here like someone maybe like David Bohm, who is someone I reference in my writing a bit, he says things like, as human beings and societies, we seem separate, but in our roots, we are part of an indivisible whole and share in the same cosmic process. And that's true interpersonally. It's true interspecially. Is that a word? Doesn't matter. I'm good at making up words. It's true inter, well, inter anything. A really important move that open and relational theology makes is to say that we are not an exception to this whole cosmic thing. We are really interesting exemplifications of this whole thing. We cannot stand outside the process of the cosmos becoming whatever it is that it is becoming. We are inside of it. We are it. We are the universe. Arrested by this thought a few months ago, I drew this guy representing me at the computer thinking to himself as he sat down at the beginning of the day to write, I hope I can make something artful out of all of this. And then the next frame is a picture of the world, representing, of course, my world, looking at the guy, who again was me, who wants to make art, and the world is thinking to itself, I hope I can make something artful out of all of this. Me making art inside a world making art, inside a universe making art, inside of a God making art. I think this is how this all works. It's a type of panentheistic cosmos. And in the middle of all of this, change, or better yet, evolution, is the process. The process is evolution. Now, if it's a random evolution, sometimes we'll say random selection, then it seems to be true that nothing much here makes any sense. It really doesn't matter if it's just all random. 
But this is the move that science often makes. It'll say we're here because of complete chance or randomness. It's what Darwinian arrival of the fittest, for many of them, seems to be all about. So this part of the universe is here because like part A was stronger than part B and it dominated. And that's why we have A over against B. And as answers go, evolution in this way is a strong answer. But there's something missing. Because A is never completely a separate matter from B. Elements of B are in A. Like when a cell overcomes another cell, it doesn't fight it in a separate mechanistic machine-like way. It subsumes it, which means it absorbs it. It becomes one with um, versus standing over and defeating. Cells are subsumable. The entire universe, it turns out, is subsumable. Everything is interconnected. This is, of course, profoundly Girardian. We're not independent, self-contained creatures. Our religion, our rules, our intelligence, it's mediated by the other, we might say. Even our enjoyment is shared. Have you heard about the pastor who told his congregation every Sunday that he was out visiting the sick, going to the hospital, meeting with the impoverished, you know, doing ministry work, when in reality he was actually golfing? And so God decides to punish him. So one Sunday afternoon, even though the pastor had told his parishioners that he was out doing the Lord's work, he was golfing. And uh, as he golfed, he kept getting holes in one or hole-in-ones, holes-in-one or hole-in-ones. First hole, second hole, 18 holes in a row. He got a hole-in-one. He couldn't believe it. One of the angels came up to God and said, why are you doing this? I thought you were trying to punish this guy. And then God looked at the angel and said, yeah, but who's he going to share it with? Even our enjoyment has to be shared for it to mean something. Everything is in relationship. Everything is interconnected. So while Girard doesn't necessarily speak a lot about evolution, he is pointing to this idea. And certainly Al Whitehead, which influences open relational theology, gets at all of this. The idea that Whitehead had was that it's not a substance-based materialism we're talking about with an emphasis on inner machine-like parts. If that was the case, it'd be incapable of evolution. Switching material parts in and out doesn't allow for anything fundamental other than, well, more material parts. What Whitehead geniusly proposed was a relational universe, a universe of process, interconnection, an experience that has the genuine potential of yielding new and emerging organisms. Andreas Wagner says, natural selection preserves innovations, but it cannot create them. Of course, Wagner's book title is taken from a contemporary of Whitehead, a guy by the name of Hugo de Vry. And he said that natural selection may explain the survival of the fittest, but it cannot explain the arrival of the fittest. Arrival, this is probably self-explanatory, but arrival is different than survival. Arrival points to some kind of intentionality. Survival is just 
whatever's left over after some things went to battle or fought. So arrival and survival are different. And while there are some scientists who see intentionality itself emerging out of a process, which I have a lot of affinity with, like this emergent idea of uh, evolution, this emergent idea of all kinds of things, I do have to say that as someone who believes in love, that I think love might be this intentionality in the midst of everything. Now, it's still subject to evolution, just as everything else is. So it might look or emote or act or feel different uh, in some ways than it did a long time ago. But I still think there are probably some common denominators that have been there all the way along. I'm not, I'm not for sure about this. This is just what I think. I think that love is motivating and propelling things forward into the arrival of something new, into the arrival of the next thing. So it's the relationship, the interplay between what was before and what's happening uh, now that gets to the next moment and it affects the arrival. So as someone interested in love, I'm inclined to think something more personal than just process or than just evolution itself is the agent. Well, whatever the case with love, where we have been arriving at and where this all seems to be going is toward, in the context of today's topic, is toward an edited type of human existence, something that's different than what we've had before. I suppose we should talk a bit about what that edited human existence might be, try to classify it. Some people reference it um, as transhumanism or posthumanism. And I know you didn't dial into this episode probably today to find the definitions of those things, but I think it's pertinent to what we're talking about. Roughly speaking, transhumanism leads to the, oh, the exaltation of intelligence over human living, we might say. In other words, it's interested in a disembodied intelligence. And it's going to be more likely to see AI as the way this is all going to happen. So, uh, for example, once our brains are uploaded into the cloud, then the Cartesian mind-body duality will finally be achieved, maybe is one way of saying it and referencing transhumanism. Posthumanism, on the other hand, has to do with more of an integration of intelligence with an embodied experience. Though it's fair to say that what kind of body we're talking about here is anyone's guess. I mean, it's certainly different than what we've had up until now. But Catherine Hells, in her book, How We Became, How we Became Post-Human, views the human being as someone and as a, um, as a species that is capable of being seamlessly articulated with intelligent machines. In the post-human, she says, there are no essential differences or absolute demarcations between bodily existence and computer simulation, cybernetic mechanism and biological organism, robot technology and human goals. While I don't love the term post-human, as if I'm like what, trying to do away with my current species and get to some kind of post kind of species, I recognize that I don't love the duality of the transhumanist either. Now, I admit that those kinds of things might be happening to some degree. Uh, not really the mind-body duality part, because I don't think that that's possible. But I do admit that the human species, as we have known it, might be on its way out. That is possible. 
that technology might be a might become the king or the tyrant in this case but i'm not really interested in pursuing that line of thinking or promoting that line of thinking and i can imagine that you can imagine why that would be the case So I'm probably more into post-humanism, though it is a bit of a counterintuitive term, isn't it? The, the general idea, though, seems more appealing. I've also heard people reference um, something called critical feminist post-humanism. And I'm not 100% sure what adding critical or feminist attached to all of this does. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what that does exactly, but I have learned that most things that have feminism attached to them, I like it better. So that might be a way to go, too. Either way, label and names aside, posthumanism seems to be the thing that's more likely in trying to overcome binaries, like the binaries between subject and object, between genders, between the human and the natural worlds, and especially the split between mind and body, matter and spirit. All of this seems to be true of the kind of theology that I'm interested in as well. That's the direction I want to go. I want to go the, the direction of unity rather than binary thinking. Honestly, you probably feel this too. Technology seems wild and scary at times. But then again, I don't think any of us are all that interested in doing away with technology, especially when we're at the dentist. For all of its misgivings, it's been an incredible benefit to the world. I mean, good grief, medicine and vaccines and new forms of connection and access to information and deconstructing oppressive hierarchies through education. All of that has been due to, or at least very much connected to technology. So that's something to be thankful for. Also, it seems to me that we really don't have much of a choice at this point for good or for bad. We've jumped in with both feet. Technology is here to stay. And for all our misgivings about becoming an integrated species, like the amalgamation of humanity and AI, uh, truthfully, I think we're already there. We're already walking cyborgs. I mean, just try and take a phone away from most of us. It's basically like removing an appendage. So it's an edited human existence, whether it's trans or post, critical feminist post, that's what we have happening to us. It's an unedited human existence that's facing us. And I guess the question is, what will make it operate in the healthiest way? Will it be all technology and no body? Will it be all science and no religion? Now, I've indicated in other places that I'm all for science in terms of how and what questions because that's what science is good at. But I'm not really for science in terms of why questions. Like, why are we here? Why do we do the things that we do? But I don't blame some of the scientists for saying that the why questions can no longer be answered by religion. Because in many cases, religion has done a horrible job. What religion keeps wanting to do is to deny certain things, I think in order to cling to old power structures. I really do think it's that simple. So what you have uh, are examples like throughout time, well, the earth is the center of the universe and anyone who says, suggests differently becomes ostracized or shamed or scapegoated. Or what you have in certain seasons of our development and still for that matter, uh, religious people looking at creation as being non-evolutionary, which completely denies the reality of what 
nature is telling us. Or another example like sexuality as being completely binary. You have these kinds of examples that religious people tend to retreat back to. And so I don't blame the science for the scientists for reacting. But the scientists I like still hold respect for a philosophy of religion. And I think that many of them think, and I certainly think, that science needs to be a part of the mix and religion needs to be a part of the mix, but not an outdated religion, rather a religion that helps us thrive, that helps us incorporate our best thinking, that can incorporate science without becoming defensive, which means we need to redefine or reframe our religion. Yeah, <laughs> I don't, probably can't say that strong enough. We do need to redefine and reframe our religion. Now, for most of my life, religion was tantamount to morality, which I think is helpful in some ways. Um, maybe we should back up and, and define what religion is. I'm not sure we can come to a complete shared definition, but when I think of religion, I think of the Latin term from which we get the English word ligament. So the Latin term is religio or religio, or however you pronounce it. I'm probably butchering the pronunciation. The point is we get the English word ligament from it, which helps you understand that we're talking about something that binds together different things. In my context, the religion bound us to the morals. And again, there's probably some helpful um, thinking involved with that. But I don't, I don't think that's the full truth. Because the problem is there's a deep misunderstanding of how we come to see certain things as moral. I'll try not to spend a lot of time on this, but... In many Americanized Christian circles, the idea is that Christ did away with the law. So now we live by grace. Of course, ignoring the idea that I think we've always lived by grace. Anyhow, set that aside for now. So the idea was Christ did away with the law, did away with the prohibitions and the rules. The obvious question is, why now, post-Jesus, do we care about certain laws then? If Christ did away with the law, why are we still enamored or obsessed or worried about certain laws? Like, why do the people who no longer care about the fact that the Bible offers strong prohibitions around clothes made of different fabrics, why do those same people seem to be ones who are so concerned about same-sex attraction, which the Bible also seems to offer prohibitions around? And by the way, those two prohibitions come within the very same passage. There's a contradiction there. Or in keeping with the sexuality theme, why are we okay with ignoring when Paul says it's unnatural for men to have long hair in one place in the New Testament, but we're not okay with ignoring it when Paul says it's unnatural for same-sex attraction? It's the same word, unnatural or immoral or an abomination, depending on how you define it, in two different places, in one case, it's about men with long hair. Another case, it's about same-sex attraction. Why do we ignore the one and cling to the other? The larger point is, why do we emphasize some things in the Bible and not other things? Now, the standard response, and I've talked about this in other places, but the standard response, at least if we go back as far as Thomas Aquinas, has been that scripture points out civil, ceremonial, and moral laws. 
And so we can delineate between these, these different things and we can assign a higher value based on these things. And the thinking continues that after Christ, it's really only the moral laws that, that matter the most, which kind of helps because then we can all agree that the civil and ceremonial stuff can be discarded, which just leaves the moral stuff, you know, the important stuff. Of course, I imagine you already see the problem. For how is it that we decide which ones have to do with morality? In the early examples, like what was your reasoning to classify clothes made of two different fabrics sewn together or long hair as a cultural or civil issue, but same-sex relationship as a moral issue? Okay, well, I wasn't planning to talk about sexuality so much in this episode, but since I'm on a roll here, I'll just keep going. I'll go ahead and say that people have responded to me as I've asked that question, like why are clothes not as important as sex? Why is long hair not as important as sex? How do, we, how do we delineate? People have responded in a variety of different ways, sometimes introspectively, most of the time not so much, either laughing or trying to shame me, that's happened quite a bit, or getting angry and saying things like, well, obviously sexuality is more important than what you wear. You know, our sexuality is more important than the length of your hair. Like literally getting angry at me for even bringing this up. But one response to that response is, yes, you're, you're right. Sexuality probably is more important than, what, than the fabric your clothes are made out of. So why not take the time to take a deeper look into our sexuality? Since it is more important, why not invest the time to understand the nuances of what, of what might be going on here instead of just retreating back into old defensive postures? Maybe by you asking questions, by learning more about biology or gender issues, or really just how to interpret the Bible for that matter, and simply giving grace to people who fall outside of binary norms. Remember binary norms that the heterosexual has been able to determine. Maybe doing all that would be a more healthy, more gracious, more Jesus-like approach than arrogantly laughing at people and attempting to shame them which honestly might be a deep-seated need to shame yourself over certain sexual issues. Okay, well, let's get back on track here because believe it or not, I am trying to make a point, a bigger point about where all this might be going. The problem here is that each religious group gets to pick and choose which of these rules that they think fall under the moral category. The bigger problem is an ignorance, well, probably a willful ignorance, to recognize that these morals don't come from some static, transcendent, capital O, omnipotent being who has established things for all time, but that they come from cultural trends and norms and therefore are subject to change. Now, you don't have to believe this. You can choose not to engage the contradiction here. If you don't want to, you don't have to. It's your life. Do what you want. But you got to be aware that lots of young people are no longer willing to do so. They're no longer willing to ignore such contradiction. You have to have the intellectual honesty to see why they're doing this and why they've moved on. I hope you don't complain about it. And I beg of you, please don't repackage, you know, an old system with like newer, hipper, relevant ways to communicate it. Don't repackage old, constrictive worldviews in order to make it more applicable for the younger generation because it's just the same system. It's just with cooler graphics or 
a more hip dressing pastor. It's the same ambiguity and contradiction around why certain laws are still esteemed in a larger context where people are told to live by grace. It's just now done with a certain polish afforded to you because you have the resources to give it polish. All right, so religio, religio, that is religion, helps us to stay connected to morals. Well, that's what religion was for me anyhow. For someone like Al Whitehead, it's a bit different. It's not so much about morals, but rather it's about beauty. You might say, well, what does that mean? That's a good question. For Whitehead, beauty is something of, um, it's like harmonization of diversity. So if you think about it, Diversity is difference, things that don't normally go together. It's the opposite of binary. It's a blending. So it's not just night and day. There's also twilight. It's not just water and land. It's a coastal blend of both. It's not just black and white. It's all the colors in between. It's not just one thing, which would lead to that one thing dominating. And it's not even just two, which sometimes leads to the one and two squaring off against each other. So it's not even that. One of the beautiful things about the Christian idea of the Trinity is that it's not just a one or a two. It's a three. Three is different. Three keeps us open to new ideas. Three is the diverse. Because of diversity, you know, things can go good or bad. So it's a risk. Beauty, my podcast listening friend, is a risk. It doesn't know how things are going to go exactly, but it doesn't give up. It's patient. It's relentless. It's irrepressible. It's always looking to bring in the unexpected, the anomaly, the different. So it's a blending, a harmonization of the difference. It all belongs. God's in everything. God's everywhere, inviting the beauty to emerge. Therefore, the one who is different than you isn't God's enemy. Therefore, the concept that is different than the concept you've always considered to be anti-God really isn't anti-God. Evolution is happening within everything. Old things are passing away. The new is emerging. But it's not just a new thing that appears out of nothing. It's the new in relationship. It's not just survival of the fittest. It's an arrival of the fittest, meaning like there's teleos, like it's going somewhere. There's trajectory and movement, which gives the idea that there's something behind all of this, an invitation, a lure, a relationship from something. Ilya DeLeo says, Christianity isn't a flight from the world. Christianity is a flight from separateness. So we repent from our top-down moves of power, and we side with the anomaly. That is, we side with the one who's been cast out, with the victim. We repent from our sacred religious ways, which have led us to believe that it's us against them. It's not. That's not beauty. That's just a binary way of looking at things. What we realize in this relational cosmos is even when we look at who we assume is our enemy, there's a piece of us in them. So we're really looking at ourselves because we so often project our problems onto them. So we repent, which means to change our mind. We still want to be bound up. Maybe that's not the best word, tied up, this idea of ligaments. We still want to be tied up to something, but it's to something now that's life-giving and empowering and promoting agency rather than promoting the powers that be. It's promoting beauty, the harmonization of diversity, 
instead of homogenized, sterilized, monochromatic or bichromatic thinking. Yeah, it's the move. I like that into multichromatic living, multichromatic theology. That might be my new catchphrase, multichromatic theology. I like that. All right. So, hey, Alice, you, you want to help me in kind of bringing this episode on home? How you doing, by the way? Have you learned anything so far? Well, maybe. You do use a lot of words, so it does tax my processing speed. <laughs> well, sorry about that. But if I understand correctly, I do like the distinction you are making between survival and arrival. If this whole thing is evolving, something or someone might be helping us to arrive at the next thing in the next moment. Yeah, and that's certainly more hopeful, at least as I understand hope, more than all of this being one giant accidental blip on the radar screen of endless space. I mean, you could still be wrong. True. But, but yeah, I think there is something redeemable in this episode. Okay, thank you for, I think that vote of confidence wasn't overwhelming or anything, but I'll take it. So what I'm trying to say is that for a true post-humanism to arise... Something that allows AI to add value to humanity, we got to reframe our religion. And it's likely that AI will learn how to learn from us primarily, just as our children will learn how to learn from us. So in other words, if we impart scapegoating ways to AI, that's what AI is going to do. However, if we can impart beauty, then maybe AI will do beauty as well. So AI isn't necessarily the problem. Well, was one caveat I might get to later. Like for uh, example, in a book called Nature, Technology, and the Sacred, there's a British sociologist, um, I don't know how. Hey, do you know how to pronounce this guy's name? Bronislaw Szerzynski. Yeah, what she said. So this guy writes this line I love. He says, when our understanding of nature shifts, the sacred also shifts. And I think that's right. When our understanding of nature shifts, our idea of the sacred also shifts. So you can't keep old paradigms when nature has shifted. And by nature here, of course, I'm talking about our understanding of our place in the world and it having moved from being like the center of the universe to being just one of the millions and trillions of creatures in the universe. It's a move from anthropocentric to, well, whatever the opposite of anthropocentric is, cosmopocentric maybe, I don't know. We're making up words here again, which we seem to do quite a bit. So it's that move from being the center of the universe to recognizing that we just play a role along with a lot of other creatures. It doesn't mean that we're not important. Of course we're important. It just means we're incorporating everything else into this as we go. And unless religion changes, people will begin to look for value in other ways. They're not seeing it. They're, people are recognizing that we're really not in an anthropocentric world. And so young people are going to start looking for value in other ways. What we need then is an evolution of religion to help us become better edited human beings to help uh, set us up to integrate with things like AI in a better or more healthy way. So three things, one of them is certainly a recap, and a couple of them are things that I've talked about in other episodes and or have written about. Number one, I think original sin is out. 
There's no need for religions to start their assessment of humanity with sin any longer. Whatever problem you start with will always inform your solutions all the way along. Or another way of saying it maybe might be, you know, your origin story will color your living story. Either way, the point is, integrating AI with original sin is not a good idea. For quite some time, personally myself, I've been much more interested in starting with like an original blessing story. And I mean, for those who care about scripture, blessing or goodness, it comes before sin anyhow. So there's no reason not to make that move. Now, I will say that lately, I've been going even a step further or maybe a step deeper or older, depending on how you look at it, and talking about what I've been calling original potential. So you have original sin and you back that up. You actually have original blessing and you back that up. And actually what you might have is original potential. That is, love is at play in the creative chaos of everything, in the formlessness and potential and complexity of what was happening in Genesis 1 verse 2. Something was already going on there. At least that's what the Hebrew narrator seems to be telling us. It wasn't as if God stepped out of nowhere. No, it seems like in the beginning, there was already something going on. And in the midst, the divine issues maybe an invitation. And then our world emerges out of all of that. It's not an outside space and time deity that reaches in and pushes like a start button or a launch button or something. It's some, I don't know, interesting, complex energy that lures creation forward, which is what might be fueling evolution. And then depending on the responses of the creation, it can go a variety of different ways, maybe good or bad, depending on how we define good or bad. So really what we're talking about here is original potential. And if you want to know more about that whole concept, you should pick up a copy of Theology of Consent. I talk about it. I flesh that out just a little bit in there. The point here is sin is out, or original sin at least is out. I think sin is still a part of the story. But what we're trying to do is move from sin to blessing to potential to start our origin story. Number two, again, as I've said and written about in other places, capital O omnipotence is out. That is the capital O omni macho God that Catherine Keller talks about. God's power isn't God's power. God's power is God's love. God is love. Love revolves around consent. Consent is small enough to work in the most difficult places, thankfully like in the very, what, synapses of AI or the equivalent of what the synapses in AI are. Hey, Alice, do you know, does AI have any synapses? Well, I'm not really sure. I know of about a trillion connections that are exchanging digital bits of information deep inside a mountain of servers hmm. in Switzerland right now. So, maybe. <laughs> I don't know if that makes me feel better or worse, but thanks for the input. So... The point is we need something very small that works, that works its way through the system, like a virus even. It was it Carl Jung who said, we don't often find God because we don't look small enough or we're not looking in the small places? I think that's true. Top-down, pyramidic, hierarchical structure is over. It's dead. Our future is not capital O omnipotence. Rather, our future, as my friend Thomas J. Ord says, is amipotent or omnipotence. 
So what he does here is he takes the Latin prefix for love, am, am, or am, like we find in positive words like amiable, and he puts it with potent, which of course stands for potency or potential. So God is amipotent, omnipotent, in the sense that divine love preconditions and governs divine power. So God always exerts power lovingly because with God, it's a love-informed power, not a power-informed love. I should probably say that again because with God, it's always a love-informed power, not a power-informed love. And love is defined by consent. So yeah, omnipotence is out and amipotent or omnipotence is in. Number three. I think we should embrace science with everything we have so that we can help integrate AI into our world with values. Values that revolve around the beauty of change amidst omnipotence. This is different than what we've generally had up to this time, which are values that revolve around static being amidst omnipotence. Seminaries and religious undergrad settings, if they wanted to, they could require that young people take like philosophy of science right alongside of theology or some kind of intro course to, let's say, the basics of quantum mechanics right alongside biblical hermeneutics. What you would find is that your hermeneutics, which is basically just the lens through which we read the Bible. So what we would find is that our hermeneutics would change because of our exposure to the quantum subject just as much or more than it would change because of our exposure to the traditional theological subject. All right, so there you have it. There are three things that would allow for our world to evolve, I think, in really helpful ways. Number one, original potential. Number two, amipotence or omnipotence. Number three, embrace science wholeheartedly. By the way, It took me about 37 tries to make sure I was pronouncing omnipotence or amipotence correctly. I'm still not sure I got it. You'll have to check in with the good Dr. Thomas J. Ord about the pronunciation, but that's what I think is going on. Um, If we could embrace original potential, if we could embrace omnipotence or amipotence, and the idea that science is relevant here and super important, so embrace that wholeheartedly. All those things will help us evolve and become better people will help us to integrate AI into our world and so that it becomes better so that the post-human, this edited human being, has the best chance of being healthy. Now, will that kind of, will embracing those things um, wind up deconstructing and disassembling our current religious systems? It's a real possibility. Yeah, I guess that's all a part of what evolution is. Sometimes you got to let some things go in order to start something new. There are, of course, lots of questions that remain open about AI and technology and our future. Like who will own the rights to certain artwork created by AI? What religious institutions will begin to accept cyborgs into their group? What about when you find out that the sermon you heard online was written by artificial intelligence and narrated by an artificial intelligent voice? What will will your reaction be to that? Will you accept truth from AI? Will you be led or will any of us be led by fear or by love? On and on. Now, there was a caveat I spoke of earlier, and it does seem to me that it's important to note that, well, again, 
None of us knows how this is going to go. We don't exactly know how AI will learn how to learn, which is a bit scary. We don't know how it's going to go. But think about it. We don't know exactly how humans learn either. We have some pretty good ideas, but we don't know it fully. Although we do know one way that they learn, and that is through what we've done in the past, which is marked by scarcity and victimizing and scapegoat. So it's not like the known quantity, you know, that which we've already done is great. It's just a known quantity. So there's hope here in the unknown, and that is a profoundly Christian move to make to trust in what could become, to be a part of what is in fact becoming. I've talked about a lot today as I've tried to address general questions to me about AI. Namely, what do we do with it? Well, it's here to stay, and it's only going to evolve. Do we think God is no longer with us just because cybernetics is increasing? If that was the case, God would have had to have moved out a long time ago. No, Love is with us all the way along, no matter what happens in the future. For I'm convinced that nothing could ever separate us from his love. Death can't and life can't. The angels won't and all the powers of hell itself cannot keep God's love away. Our fears for today, our worries about tomorrow, are where we are, high above the sky or in the deepest ocean or integrating with AI. Nothing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God. so much for being with me today. Now I'm going to play you a few minutes of my conversation with my friend, Dr. Sherry Kling. Sherry is someone who says that she's in the practice of midwifing wholeness through soul story and song. So she's an author, she's a speaker, and I've really been enjoying her most recent book, A Process Spirituality. And I wanted to invite Sherry in. She's not necessarily an expert on AI, but I wanted to invite her in to talk about change and process and how to negotiate all the uh, different things that are coming at us these days that we are in. So you're going to hear a bit from her, my conversation with her, and then um, we'll let Alice take us out, but make sure to follow up on patreon.com forward slash Jonathan underscore Foster to get the rest of my conversation with Dr. Sherry. Thank you so much for being here today and peace out, everyone. They're, they're neutral. Mm-hmm. And it's up to us to decide how we will use the tools and technologies that are created that we develop and maybe even to choose not to develop some. Mm-hmm. You know, my complaint with this whole sort of transhumanism idea where we can like upload our brain to a computer and live forever uh, and then maybe, you know, reanimate another body with those brain contents. You know, to me, that's just a nightmare uh, that I want no part of. And I, I always kind of want to say, can we just tr- can we try depth humanism before we try trans transcending humanism? Like, can we just actually become the humans we were yeah. meant to be? Before we just before we decide and jettison that idea, um, so yeah, I mean, over and over again, we see the evidence of our hubris and our that our attempts to control nature are just radical failures. 
radical, unbelievable failures. And so I'd rather really just see us use the tools we can that help us flourish. But like, let's just dig in and be human and messy and wonderful and amazing and fat, fully multifaceted and sweat and blood and just do it all. Yeah. Yeah. So you're speaking to the difference between what some are calling transhuman and posthuman. Mm. And so posthuman feels a bit counterintuitive to me. That is probably the view. Well, frankly, I think we're already in a quote unquote posthuman kind of, I mean, you mentioned the phones. Phones are just, we're almost, um, they're just a part of our, they're integrated into our lives so much. We're almost part computer already. Mm. Not to mention um, artificial organs and those kinds of things. So we're we're pretty close to being cyborgs already, especially no, compared, yeah. especially compared to what people <laughs> thought of, you know, a couple hundred years ago. So, but that is a. See, I, I'd like to see us go smaller rather mm, than bigger. Right, right. You know, like I'd yeah. like to see us because humans are not designed to be. We're not designed to live globally. Mm. We're designed to live locally in small mm. groups mm-hmm. with with people that we know. That's how we flourish. So I think if we can move more toward a sort of bioregionalism mm-hmm. and, you know, where we can make our communities be more self-sustaining and smaller and locally controlled, the, the globalist movement, uh, yeah, it's just been detrimental to our lives. Yeah, it's challenging. Thank you for being with us today. Don't miss out on the rest of that interview, which you can find on Dr. J's Patreon page. And make sure to check out his newest book, Theology of Consent. Mimetic Theory in an Open and Relational Universe on Amazon and other fine digital bookstores. Cheers to everyone.